Well, good morning, dear church family. Uh, it's Duncan here. I can't be there with you today, unfortunately. I've come down with a cold, but I really wanted the opportunity to uh, finish up this um, series for us, uh, looking at the end of everything. I hope and trust it's been an encouraging and challenging time as we've seen this big story of God's good end that was woven right in from creation. Today, we're looking at the last um, part of that, the end of the end. Um, and, but I wonder what uh, comes to your mind when you look into the future. We're going to be looking at the future today. What do you see as you look into the future? Maybe it's a world marked by COVID, uh, a world dominated by political instability or international unrest or environmental disaster. Maybe for you though it's a bit more personal, um, your own uh, struggles or loneliness or financial pressure, health concerns. They're all real and right things to be concerned with and to think through how uh, we relate to them as Christians today. But what we're going to do today is, uh, what I want us to do is lift our eyes to the future that God has in store for this world. The future that God has in store for you. Uh, this series we've been looking at the end of everything. Uh, and we've seen the way in which God's, uh, God created this world with a good end in mind and how sin came in and threatened that end. Uh, we've heard uh, how that end has been wonderfully fulfilled in Jesus, uh, how he is the end, and how God by his spirit is bringing that end in us today, in his church, uh, through his word. So God's end has come in Jesus. It is coming in us, but there's another end God has in mind. Uh, God's plan for creation uh, isn't fully realized yet. And we all know that this world is just full of, uh, it's still fallen, still full of corruption and sin, and it needs a dramatic renewal. Uh, hopefully this image will be familiar to you as we looked at last week, these uh, overlap of the ages, but there will come a day when there is another day of the Lord that God has promised. Uh, today what we're going to do is just have an overview of that coming day. I'm not going to go into lots of details. Uh, but we are going to trace the big contours of what the Bible says about that coming end, this coming end, the day of the Lord. So this not yet end. The first thing to say is that this not yet end is definite. It's definite. It's going to happen. Uh, you read this in Acts chapter 17. As the Apostle Paul, he preaches, for he, for he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So God has set a day when this will happen. It's as certain as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Uh, the natural kind of next question is when? When's this going to happen? And the consistent message in the New Testament is no one knows except God the Father himself. Even Jesus said he, he himself didn't know. Matthew 24 verse 36 says this. This is Jesus speaking. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Uh, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So we don't need to kind of anxiously try and figure it out. Uh, the New Testament doesn't encourage us to plot out timelines or roadmaps to figure out dates for Jesus' return. But what God's Word does call Christians in every generation to live as, uh, is to live as, as if this end is very near, because it could be. And in God's timing, actually, it is. So you get this from 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind, 
so that you may pray. So the end is definite, and for Christians through every generation, the end is very near. We don't know when it's going to come. Uh, but what is it going to look like? I want to just highlight three things, three things of, uh, three, um, that the Bible teaches about this coming end. Uh, it's going to be a revelation, it's going to be a purification, and it's going to be a consummation. Three things, a revelation, a purification, and a consummation. Uh, so uh, firstly, though, this not yet end, it's going to be a, a revealing, a revelation. Uh, we look, we've looked at, over the last couple of weeks, how Jesus, Jesus is the risen Lord now. And not only that, we sit with him now in the new creation. Uh, it, the new creation has come in him now. We sit him, with him in the heavenly places. But there's a hiddenness about all those realities. Uh, but on that day, what is now hidden is going to be plain to everyone. It's going to be plain to everyone. We glimpsed that hope last week in Colossians 3, that great passage where it says, where Paul writes, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So there's these two revealings in that passage, right? There's the revealing of Christ and his glory, but also the re revealing of his people. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He talks about how Jesus emptied himself even to the cross. And then he says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That's been done in the past, but what's in the future? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, on that day, Jesus will be seen for who he is in all his wonderful glory, the Lord, all to the glory of God the Father. But not only that, God's children are going to be revealed as well. Uh, we, his people will be seen for who they are. And there's this beautiful place that you get this in Romans chapter 8, where Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with, with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So this, this coming end is going to be this great revealing of what is now true in Jesus. When what is now by faith is going to be by sight. It will be plain to everyone that Jesus is Lord and that all those who are united to him are God's children so it's a revealing, it's a revelation. It's also going to, there's another aspect to this, and it's probably actually the most difficult one. So we're going to spend a bit of time here. This coming day is also going to be a day of purification, not just revelation, purification. And these two are linked. And this is where we're going to jump to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, revelation, it was a letter, actually. It was a letter written to seven churches in the first century. And much of it was written in a style of writing called apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic writing was, it was used in ancient times and it was common in the Bible actually when, um, when it's talking about the future for God's people. And it would have been a much more familiar style of writing um, to the first readers of the Bible than it is to us. It can be quite strange to us. Uh, apocalyptic writing, literature, it uses these cosmic 
symbolic language and imagery to describe the true spiritual significance of real historical events. Cosmic language to describe the spiritual theological significance of real historical events. So uh, through Revelation there's a, there's, there's a cycle of these apocalyptic visions given to the Apostle John. They paint this dramatic picture of the last days, this time from Jesus' first coming right up to and including his coming again. And all these different visions through the letter uh, look at this period and it's like they're looking at it from different angles and they all build on each other to build this great picture. Uh, and it culminates towards the end of John's letter um, with, this, with this great final battle between Jesus and the forces of evil in chapter 19 and 20. Uh, but there's this surprise when you get there. There's this surprise when you get there. There's this huge build-up for this final confrontation between God and evil, this massive build-up of Satan and his forces. But then, as you read on, you realise there's no actual battle. There's no battle that takes place. It's all over in a second. Um, in, in chapter 20, we read that fire comes down from heaven and instantly destroys these enemies. In chapter 19, these forces of evil are dealt with easily by the word of Jesus. So Jesus is pictured with a sword, but it's not in his hand. Uh, it's a sword coming out of his mouth. It's this striking image of the absolute power of his word. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther picked up on this, this, um, this uh, image in Revelation uh, in his famous hymn, The Mighty Fortress. The Mighty Fortress is our God. Maybe you know it. Uh, one of the verses goes like this. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Uh, it's important to see this aspect of God's purifying judgment. This cosmic aspect. Behind the evil and suffering and injustice of this world lie these, these dark spiritual forces. Now, we can be a bit nervous about that, but it's the consistent teaching of the Bible. There's, there's more going on in history than just the rise and fall of nations, than just the decisions that people make. And these dark forces, spearheaded by Satan, uh, they are intent on disrupting God's good end for his creation. God's design for his world was for it to be a place of flourishing. He created humanity to live in life and peace with him and with each other. Uh, he is the God who is love, whose heart is to share his eternal love with his creatures. And Satan is intent on spoiling that. But the great future hope of the gospel is that Satan's doom is sure. And there will come a day when one little word from Jesus will fell him. And friends, I want to suggest to you that this is why we should long for this judgment of God. The judgment of God is pretty unpopular in our culture today. It's a popular teaching. It makes many people uncomfortable. Maybe it makes you pretty uncomfortable too. But I want to suggest not only that we should long for it, but deep down, each of us actually do long for the judgment of God, whether we acknowledge it or not. See, in the Bible's big picture, 
Uh, this coming day of judgment is fundamentally a day when God's good end for this world will finally and completely be achieved. It'll be the day when his world will be purified of all the evil and sorrow and hatred that mark our lives today. It'll be a day when every injustice that has been swept under the carpet is going to be brought into the light. This is the day we long for, a day of true and perfect justice. And yet, and yet, and yet there's more to say, there's more we need to say. God must judge and remove evil from his world in order to bring about this final consummation of his good end. And that includes Satan and spiritual forces. Uh, it also actually includes corrupt human systems of power. You get that in Revelation where these, uh, these oppressive systems, are, human systems, are pictured as this great city of Babylon that is, that's also judged and destroyed. But all those things are kind of out there, right? But God's judgment is not only on the evil out there, whether it's spiritual forces or oppressive systems. It's also on the evil in here the evil each of us willingly participate in. Uh, the Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn puts it really memorably like this. He writes that the line separating good and evil, this line separating good and evil, passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line dividing good and evil, it's not between groups out there, it's between right through every human heart. So friends, this day is going to be a day when the searching spotlight of God's judgment shines into the deepest darkness of every human heart. Nothing will be hidden. Uh, Jesus tells a parable describing this last day in Matthew chapter 25. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. Maybe you're familiar with it. It starts off like this. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as the shepherds, as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the parable goes on. But what's really interesting is that those who are his sheep, his people, they have a place prepared for them. It's this internal inheritance in God's kingdom. But the goats in Jesus' parable, that's those who have lived in opposition to Jesus and his rule. They have a place as well, but this, this place isn't prepared for them. Jesus says this in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, that's the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the focus of God's purifying fire is to destroy the devil and his angels. He has prepared a place of punishment and destruction for them. And that's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's what we long for. 
But tragically, but also certainly, those who have rejected the Son will also be swept up in that judgment. And that's what you see in Revelation chapter 20, going back to Revelation. And again, it's in this heightened cosmic language. Uh, verse 11, um, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, that's Jesus, the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Uh, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, this is the sobering reality that the gospel proclaims. It's a reality that we must look at squarely if we're going to be faithful to the clear teaching of the Bible. But here's what's really critical to realise. What's critical to realise when we're thinking about this is that the one who will open the book of your life the one before whom nothing will be hidden, to whom the secrets of your heart will be exposed. That one is none other than Jesus himself. And that makes all the difference. Do you remember the battle scene back in Revelation chapter 19 that we looked at before? There's this really important detail there that's easy to miss. So Jesus rides to this battle. Uh, but curiously, he already has blood on him before the battle, as he's riding up to it. So you read this in verse 13. Uh, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. So what's going on there? It's this powerful reminder of something that's come up again and again through Revelation. Throughout these visions, Jesus is pictured as the victorious King of Kings, but also and at the same time as this Lamb who was slain. It's this really strange picture of a bloodied lamb sitting on a throne. But it's rich in wonderful significance and it leads us straight to the cross of Christ. Uh, the one who will put an end to the forces of evil, the one who will judge the evil in every person's heart, is the same one who died as a sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world. The same one who holds out to each person a refuge from his judgment, bought at the cost of his own life. Friends, judgment must come in order to bring about God's good end for his creation. But God has done everything so that his people might come through that judgment safe in Jesus. That is the glory of the gospel. And that's what the book of life in Revelation 20 is all about. You might have heard that as we read through this book. Uh, when, when the books are open, when your book is opened before Jesus, you won't come out clean. None of, none of us will. All of us will rightly face 
what our Revelation calls the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. None of us will be able to talk back to him. Every mouth will be closed before the absolute rightness of his judgment. But Jesus is writing a new book, a book of life, a book of those covered by his blood, a book of those who by his wonderful grace have turned from their sin to put their trust in him. So friends, to refuse Jesus' offer to have your name written in that book is to stay in your sin under condemnation and facing eternity apart from his presence, apart from his loving, blessing presence. And that's what hell ultimately is, being cast away from the presence of the loving God who is life. Um, author C.S. Lewis reflects on this reality and he makes this really, um, uh, really profound point, I think. He, he says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell, that's what we're talking about, the answer to all those who object to it is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. So I just want to speak directly to you, friends, if you are not yet a Christian listening to this. If you're not someone who has repented of your sin and turned to Christ and who is trusting in him. This judgment of God on the last day is as certain as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His resurrection guarantees the bright future hope of the Bible, but it also guarantees the sobering truth that God brings about that future through judgment. It, he, it, he has to. God's righteous justice demands that evil be dealt with, that your evil be dealt with. And the question that the gospel gives to you today is, will you let Jesus, the lamb who was slain, will you let him deal with it for you now and take it from you completely and forever? Will you ask him to write your name in his book of life? Will you receive his forgiveness? I wonder if you've ever thought about why, why God hasn't brought about this day yet. Why God hasn't brought about this day. Uh, it's not because he's slow or forgetful or uh, hasn't remembered his promises. Uh, this, you read this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting, wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Everyone to come to repentance. See what Peter's saying there? God is holding off on this day of judgment. Why? He's patiently holding off. Why? So that you would repent. So that you would come to Jesus in faith and be reconciled to God 
And doing that will throw open the door to a future that is unspeakably bright and good and meaningful and real. Uh, it's the consummation of God's good end for his creation. He, uh, he has achieved that end in Jesus. He's achieving it now in us by his spirit. And he will achieve it on the last day with us in total perfection. For his own glory, he will make us his people in his image to rule over his world under Christ our King, enjoying his loving presence forever. And that's what you get straight after this purifying judgment in Revelation in chapter 21. And this is where we started off in the first week of this series and we're kind of, kind of uh, come full circle now. Back to chapter 21, uh, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Sea is a symbol of chaos and evil in the, in the ancient world. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, this new people of God in Christ, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. <laughs> then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Friends, that... Water without cost, that water of life is offered to you today. Uh, and so, as, and as we get to the end of this series, the end of the Bible's big picture, what we find out is is actually a beginning. It's actually the beginning, the beginning of real life as it was meant to be lived. Uh, I'm going to go back to C.S. Lewis. It's hard to get past him. He has this great scene in the last battle in his Narnia series, the last book. Where Aslan, who's the Jesus figure, he judges and brings an end to Narnia and he takes his people into his own country. The surprise, though, is that Aslan's country is actually Narnia, again, but it's bigger and better and more alive than the old Narnia ever was. It's not less than, it's much more than. It's, it's the true Narnia that the old one was always just like a shadow of. And the book finishes like this. These are wonderful uh, last words in this book. And as he spoke, that's Aslan, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. Uh, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world. And all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. They were at last, now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read. 
which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Every chapter better than the one before. So this end, friends, is the true beginning. It's what every longing of your heart strains towards. It's what Jesus died to usher you into. It's what he is fitting you for now as the risen and ascended Lord who pours out his spirit to transform you into his image. Well, where do we finish with these things? Uh, where I want to finish is just one verse from the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that was read out for us. That The chapter is reflected so powerfully on the wonder and majesty of the resurrection hope that we have in Jesus. And it finishes with this call to Jesus' people as they wait for that glorious day. And I want us to hear that as a call to us too. The last, chapter, the last verse of the chapter says this, Therefore, so in light of all of this, this great hope that we have through Jesus, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, this body united in Christ, uh, this new family that Jesus is making. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Not standing firm in yourself, but standing firm in Him. So let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Your labour in the Lord is not in vain because the end has come. It is now coming in us and it will come fully in a consummate way on the last day. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Oh, our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful vision of the end. We thank you that Jesus has achieved it. He's working it within us now and it will come to perfect fruition on the day when he returns. Help us, Father, to long for that day. Help us to work for that day. Father, for those of us who are outside of Christ, work your spirit powerfully in us now, please. Draw us to yourself and the life and hope and peace that you freely offer through this water of life poured out through Jesus. For all of us, Lord, help us to live for this day soberly and expectant of it. Uh, help us to know that our labour for you is not in vain. It won't fade away. Lord, help us to see how we might take our part in this great story. And we pray that for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.